privileges that we have, uh, especially this week as we think about uh, reaching the, the lost around us, reaching our community from our comfort to their need. We've asked uh, Pastor uh, Mike Aitchison, where, where is, he? is he, to come and give us a word. Uh, the, where is he? Oh, there he is. <laughs> Uh, in, this, in a Sunday school class uh, uh, before uh, worship, he uh, gave us a grand vision of the many things that he faces and why he faces them and why he faces them with great courage and confidence in Jesus Christ. And, he, he, and he'll, I'm sure he'll uh, talk about it uh, in, the, in his sermon, but one of the things that he speaks of is uh, this beautiful picture that has been kind of laid out for us in the scriptures of God. Uh, uh, calling uh, many to himself from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. So, brother, why don't you come and encourage us with a word from the Lord? Uh, I would like to go shopping with you, brother. <laughs> uh, Elder John, thank you so much for that prayer. I'm, I'm pleased to announce that in the middle section of his prayer, he covered uh, much of my application, so my, 15, my sermon will be curtailed by 15 minutes. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to be here with you all this morning. I bring you greetings from Christ United Fellowship in South Downtown Orlando and my wonderful wife, Lucy, who's uh, now in service. Uh, yeah, the sermon should be uh, underway right now at our church, and... Uh, with our four kids and my father-in-law there as well. Um, we are so grateful for you all and the opportunity to be co-laborers for Christ's kingdom. Um, let me just ask the Lord's blessing over our message, if you will. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy toward us. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Uh, bless the preaching of your word this morning. God, grant us ears to hear. Lord, grant us eyes to see and turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Anoint me, Lord, for this your service. Uh, what is not of me, let it fall to the ground. I boast now in my weakness that your power may rest upon me. Not to us, O Lord, be the glory, not to us, but to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you all are undertaking an, an incredible uh, topic this missions conference, one that resonates greatly with my heart. And I'd like us to consider a few thoughts from Psalm 87 this morning, uh, from which the hymn Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken is based. And uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to read along as these words are read into your hearing. I'll be reading from the ESV, and you'll find these words recorded. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold Philistia and Tyre and with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. 
This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. Listen, growing up in Miami was an interesting experience for me. I love to share about it. Uh, We had a fun neighborhood which consisted of a myriad of people from all kinds of backgrounds, all walks of life. Uh, we, We had multiple interests culturally, different sports teams. Some were from the neighborhood, some migrated there. I didn't know until I was older that we had legends, people who were uh, nationally engaged that lived in my community. Uh, But one of the things that I loved most uh, about my community was the high school I attended. I'm a proud Miami Killian Senior High Cougar. The Miami Killian Senior High Cougars. And occasionally we would have this prayer day around the flagpole, and for some, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is perhaps this secular sort of gathering where people from uh, different uh, different religions or whatever are coming together for this quiet moment of silence. But that was not the case. We gathered around the flagpole for a national day of prayer uh, for our country, for our school, and uh, for our neighborhood, our communities. And the people uh, that this gathering consisted of were Christians. Uh, These were some people that uh, I walked around school and saw on a regular basis that didn't sound like me. Uh, These were people that did not look like me. Uh, These were people who did not live in my community. Uh, These were people that did not show up at my playground. These are people that I did to, with whom I did not drive to the beach on the weekends. But yet and still we gathered together and we locked arms from the left to the right. Men, women of all extractions. And we prayed to the Lord Jesus Christ. We prayed for his blessing upon us. We prayed for our communities. And something about that struck me years later. Something about seeing people that did not look like the person I saw in the mirror every single day but loved the same God as me caused me to scratch my head and wonder about how big this God is. And the older I get, I come to see that he's up to more than I think or more than what you think or more than what anybody thinks. He's up to saving more than just our kind is what I've come to discover in my life as an adult and what I'm growing to understand more and more. I'm, I'm understanding more and more that he is a cross-cultural God. And so as we consider some thoughts this morning for your missions conference about reaching across the fence, about reaching across the street, about reaching outside of your neighborhood, Not just across the oceans, but internally and externally to different kinds of people. I think the word of God will encourage us this morning as we consider three points from our text. And this theme of the cross-cultural community, we will see from Psalm 87, the cross-cultural God. We will see cross-cultural inhabitants. And we will finally see cross-cultural praise, that is, The cross-cultural God, 
cross-cultural inhabitants and cross-cultural praise. Now, if you look here firstly at the cross-cultural God, you will notice in verses 1 through 3 that the psalmist talks about this glorious city. He says that he has founded his city on the holy mountain. And the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, O city of God. And so in the first place, we see here that there is a God who established a certain territory for his dwelling. And we see this word Zion. It's a poetic name to describe the city of Jerusalem where God decided to dwell in a special way. Now, God was the creator of all things, everything that exists except himself. But he chose to dwell among Israel in a unique way that he did not among all the other nations. And if you'll think back to our little, uh, our, our, our mosaic history, our Pentateuch history, you'll remember that God led the Israelites uh, with a fire by night. He led them with a cloud by day. He descended upon the tabernacle where uh, the people of Israel would gather and he dwelled among his people. And then Solomon had a temple constructed for him and the glory of the Lord, the same glory that dwelled among Israel, descended to this temple. So it was a unique place. It was a place where the Lord's presence was concentrated in a special way. Jerusalem was the city where worship, where sacrificial offerings, where theological education, where all the spiritual hubbub took place, if you will. It was the city of salvation. Salvation emanated from that city. And God was among his people in a unique way. And of all these places, of all the cities in which his people dwelled, God set his affection on Jerusalem in a unique way, according to Cal- and according to Calvin, it was not because of his worth, but because of his free love. So it had nothing to do with anything that was special about the dirt. It had nothing to do with anything that was special about the mountain ranges. It was nothing unique about Israel. What made it unique, what made Jerusalem unique, was that God, out of his free love, decided... To concentrate his presence there out of his free love. The psalmist says, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. And as we move through this, as we move through the psalms, we find out that there are more praiseworthy. There are more laudable things to be said about the city of God. Psalm 46 tells us, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall and God will help her at break of day. Psalm 48 tells us, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. As we keep on moving along, we see that There are yet more things to be said about this glorious city. Not only do we see here the God, the cross-cultural God who established this city, but we see something here about 
the inhabitants of the city, which is our centerpiece of the message. He tells us in verse four, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre along with Cush. Now you got to stop right there and pause for a second. When you read those names, you scratch your head and you say, these are some interesting characters in biblical history. These weren't exactly friends of Israel. These weren't exactly the type of people who had God's interest, nor his people's interest in mind. But what the psalmist reveals to us is that God has an expansive, God has a comprehensive program of redemption. It's not just concentrated on Israel, it expands beyond ethnic Israel. And as some of you may have guessed, these were some of the most fierce enemies of Israel. Yet the text tells us, the psalmist tells us, Israel worshiped to this text that these people would be among the record. That somehow these people would be among God's chosen people. Now, if you'll recall, God made a promise to Abraham. God called him out of a pagan nation, blessed him, called him in a covenant relationship and said, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What we have here is a temporal fulfillment of that. What we see here is an initial fulfillment right out of the gate. God who told Abraham that I will bless you and all, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. We see the psalmist singing of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. They recognized a day was coming where God would, in a, a very incredible way, make good on his promise. And they sang this in their worship service. And this is a reiteration to Abraham's offspring that I remember the promise I made to your great granddaddy. I remember the promise that I made to your patriarch. I remember the promise I made to the one from whose uh, loins you all descended. And I'm going to keep my promise. There will be people that you least uh, expected, who will, who, people who were against you, who will be suddenly for you. That's what I'm up to. And when the psalmist speaks of knowing these people, he's not simply talking about a familiarity with the God of Israel. He's talking about knowing the God of Israel and in, in a very intimate way. He's talking about knowing them in a covenantal way. He's talking about, he's talking about knowing them in a way that one who loves their God and the God who loves their, uh, their creation will relate. So that is, they will come to worship this God. Look at some of these folks. Rahab was the nickname given to Egypt and a mythological sea monster with great powers that opposed God. Do we need to say much about Israel's, Israel and Egypt's relationship? Do you remember that man named Pharaoh? Do you remember that wicked man that wouldn't let God's people go until God had to, by his uh, mighty hand demonstrate who really was in charge? Do you remember that a tyrannical regime known as Egypt that enslaved God's people? The nickname was Rehab and now God is saying that they will be recorded among those who know me. And it's not in this sense that, oh, we heard stories about this God. 
It's the sense in which we will reverence this God. We will worship this God. We will relate to this God in the same way that his chosen people did. He says that Babylon will be in this number. Do you remember the Babylonians? Do you remember these enemies who oppressed God's people, who destroyed the temple? Do you remember Philistia and Tyre? These were co-conspirators to destroy God's people, according to Psalm 83. So what God wants us to understand here is that he's going to make enemies friends. By his redemptive power, he's going to cause people to be frenemies, if you will. Cush, the Ethiopian region. These were people of different ethnic extraction. So God's mind is far bigger. God's goal is far greater. God's ability is far more expansive than we tend to think. He's all about reaching out to different kinds of people. I remember when I was in high school, you know, everybody can recall one of those people that you just thought, good night, there's not enough grace in the world to say <laughs> there's not enough grace in the world to save these kind of folk. We had a, I had a friend like that. Man, he was just, he, he would, the stories he would tell of his mischief. I mean, it was just like every, it's like, the, you remember the Tasmanian devil? It was just like this cyclone of destruction. I mean, it, whether he was fighting with a coach, whether he was involved in some kind of, uh, debacle in his neighborhood it just it just seemed like trouble just preceded him stood next to him and followed him all the days of his life and one day I was on the phone with a coach years later and he said do you remember I'll use the name James he said you remember James I said yeah of course I do he said I spoke to him recently and he said he found the Lord I said, have mercy. If there's enough grace for him, there's enough grace for anybody. (laughs) But James depicted the depths of God's grace. James depicted the comprehensiveness of God's plan, how far reaching God's salvation extended. And for us, we get a taste of this in our neighborhood on a personal note on a regular basis. When we were in Oviedo, we had five Puerto Rican neighbors uh, that surrounded us. We exchanged food with them. Uh, They would bring over pernil and some other stuff and I would cook jerk chicken or collard greens or different. So we had a nice uh, relationship going with them. And this was a microcosmic expression of what the psalmist envisioned. He tells us not only do we, not only do we see that these inhabitants are enemies, not only are they from different extractions, But he tells us down here in verse 4b, and will say, this one was born in Zion. Now, we know that these folks were not uh, literally born here. They they didn't have the ethnic heritage uh, like the Israelites. Uh, Theirs was not the covenants. Theirs was not the promises. Theirs was not the unique dwelling place of God like that of the Israelites. But this word here in the Hebrew, according to Professor Furtado, the word Yalad is as though they were actually born in this location. So what it means is that they will have a dual citizenship. 
While they are Ethiopian, while they are Egyptian, while they are Philistines, while they are Cushites, while they are tyrants, if you will, it will be as though they bore the same name of Zion. When they get to eternity, their passports will say, born in Zion. So they will maintain whatever their ethnic identity was, whatever their cultural heritage was, but it will say stamped as one born in Zion is what the psalmist depicts here. I had a friend of mine who's old enough to be my father. I love hanging out with people who are older than me. They, uh, these days, um, I look like them now. And somebody uh, was teasing me about it last night, and I said, well, that's what church planting and four kids will do to you. Said, Did you shave your head? No, it just, uh, it just naturally shaved itself. That's what, <laughs> that's what happens. There's not much work left for me to do. He's from the Bahamas, and he said, according to their custom, if a child's father is from the Bahamas and they're born in another country, they can still maintain their citizenship in Bahamas and that country. But when they get of age, they have to declare uh, which one they will want. But not so with the Lord. You get to retain both. As the way you are right now is the way you will be in a glorified state. Who you are will not be sanitized. God created you this way and that's how you will look, but only better. The way the culture that God gave you will abide. The look that God gave you will be the same, although it will be much more striking in appearance. It'll be a dual citizenship. While this city was founded by God, it says here that there are greater things to expect in the establishing of this city. Verse six tells us the Lord will write in the register of the peoples. This one was born in Zion. Once again, we see here this theme is repeated, the theme repeated in verse 6 that was already mentioned in verses 4 and 5 of the Lord uh, describing the recording of all his people into this registry. Now, what we want to understand here is that the psalmist is seeing that while there already is a book of life, there is a registry that the Lord possesses already. Once they enter into covenant relationship with the Lord, it's as though it were ratified. So there's a heavenly registry already said and done in the mind of the Lord, but it's made official, it's authenticated, if you will, in time and space. If you'll remember uh, when we were in elementary school, uh, you would go from first to second to third, fourth, fifth grade, maybe sixth or seventh, eighth, depending on uh, how old you were when you matriculated through the elementary system. And for me, uh, we had different sections of the school. And each year, you would be guided to a different section, and we would walk past the different classrooms. And we would see our names on different registries. All right? you, you would go to Miss Finkelman's class, and you would see so-and-so. You would go to Miss Hill's class and you would see so-and-so. But even though your name was already on the registry, it wasn't validated. It wasn't authenticated. It wasn't ratified, if you will, until Miss Finkelman took the attendance cards and called your name and you responded by saying, here I am. So what we see here is that the Lord has a diverse gathering of people already recorded in his registry. But what happens in time and space is he authenticates that, he validates that you are my people and your name was already recorded in my registry. We see not only the cross-cultural God and the cross-cultural inhabitants, but we also see cross-cultural praises. It tells us here in verse 7 that as they make music, they will sing, all my fountains are in you. And is not celebration fitting? 
for a passage that reminds God's people that he will reign over the nations and that those who once posed a threat to them will now be the ones who advocate for them, not only recognizing that he is an amazing God, but that he is the amazing God of creation. And this was the hope of the nations, that this God here who created Israel, who called this small, infinitesimal, tiny little nation from nothing into something, would one day rule over all the nations. The springs we see here are like the ones envisioned in Joel and in Psalm 46 and Ezekiel, and these all pertain to life. So in other words, this is a city where there's life, a constant stream of life flowing to the nations that provide healing and continuous life and growth for all who are in its dwelling. And in light of this psalm, Israel should have been a witness to the nations. Israel would have been motivated to go out and share, to go out and be a witness, to go out and proclaim to the surrounding nations as was their calling that our God reigns, that our God is the living and true God, and that this in our God there is salvation and the fullness of life. But we know here that Israel fell short of that. But we see this reality uh, inaugurated at different points in history with proselytes. We see this inaugurated and uh, we see shades of it in history with different uh, God-fearing Gentiles and sojourners along with Israel. But we see it preeminently fulfilled in Jesus Christ who by his very blood tears down the wall of hostility that existed between Israel and all the other nations, that by his very blood that spilled out to the nations brought them in. We see this in Jesus Christ. When we look at his earthly ministry, we see this ragtag man going around doing all sorts of taboo things, hanging out with Samaritans. We see this man hanging out with Syrophoenicians. We see this man hanging out with Romans. We see this man hanging out with enemies of God's people and making friends. Jesus comes to fulfill this psalm in his earthly ministry. He reminds Israel that this was your calling, that I am the God of the nations. At his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the Gentiles who came down to worship at the feast, who had who were restricted to the Gentile court uh, in the temple, said, where is this Jesus? To Andrew and Philip. And then they went and they said, Jesus, there are some people, some Gentiles who want to talk to you. And he proceeded to say that the wheat must fall to the ground and die. What Jesus was telling them was that my blood, my death, my atonement is going to set my atonement is going to satisfy the requirement for your salvation. That's what the Gentiles needed to hear. And that's what the Israelites needed to see that Jesus's salvation extended beyond the walls of ethnic Israel. And that was the calling of God's people to go towards the nations. And we see after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit descends upon God's people and they start hearing the gospel in their tongue. People say, what is it? Are these folks drunk in the middle of the day? No, they're not drunk. What's happening is God is fulfilling his promise to send his spirit. God is fulfilling his promise to pour out his spirit on all flesh that he prophesied through Joel. God is fulfilling his promise to be a blessing to every single family of 
the earth. The Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that the promise made to Abraham is fulfilled. All the families of the earth, anybody without reservation that says yes to Jesus Christ, will have a place in God's kingdom and will become spiritual offspring of Abraham. We see here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, that Christ by his blood abolished the wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. And when you continue reading down that chapter, it tells us at the bottom that the spirit is building a temple as a dwelling place for God. So you ask, where is God dwelling right now? He did not descend back on the temple. He descended on his church, which consists of people from myriad backgrounds. Well, you say it looks kind of rough at times, preacher. How does this story end when we turn all the way to the back of the book? God tells us that we win. John says, I beheld and saw that there was a number from every, that no man could count from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And what were they doing? They weren't simply recognizing. They weren't simply acknowledging. They were worshiping the lamb. They were worshiping the one in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. They were worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. So beloved, we win in the end. We will finally be reconciled. Friends, enemies will become friends. It will be a cross-cultural eternity forevermore. Somebody said, well, you know, I, I, I just... It's so hard. Another man said, well, you ought to get used to it because that's what we'll be doing forever. Amen? Now, let me offer a few uh, points of application for you this morning that I think will be helpful as you consider uh, this theme from our comfort to their need. How do we live in light of what Christ has done and is still doing? You see, it's not just enough to say that God and Jesus Christ has torn down the wall and we know that the word of God is real and that people will be reconciled. It's not just this abstract thing that we're just waiting on to happen one day. God is up to this right now. This is core to the mission of God. Anyone who says yes to Jesus is justified by faith. Anyone who says yes, anybody, it doesn't matter. We don't have to wait for the by and by to see it happen. In fact, we are called right now to go out and be lights in the world to communicate to the world that our God is the one who is the savior of the world. Now, we need to take advantage of these opportunities by showing hospitality to people who are different than us. As God, the triune King, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit invited us into community with him, we ought to go out and invite people into community with the church, thereby having a relationship with our triune King. You see, God didn't have any need. God didn't just wake up in eternity one day and say, you know what, we need some more company. He was absolutely fine, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But out of his love, out of his goodness, out of his kindness, and out of something secret in his will, which I don't know and I will not even try to proffer a guess, because that belongs to him, he decided to create us, and he decided to predestine the people to himself. And that's our calling to go out and make this God famous. And he showed hospitality, that is, he literally showed love to strangers by bringing us in. So we ought to follow that same pattern. People say, how can we engage in cross-cultural worship? How can we engage in cross-cultural missions in our community? You can start by saying hello to your neighbor that you've ignored for the past 30 years. That's a simple starting place. 
Think about how many times you have passed by a neighbor and not even said hello to them. Think about how many missed opportunities to invite someone over for a cup of coffee. I'm not saying you have to cook for them. Invite them over to sit down on your porch and just have a cup of coffee. Think about how often you've gone to work and that person that is sitting in a cubicle next to you. Or think about that uh, place where you serve or the customer that for whom you provide service that you've never asked their story. Think about whether you even know where your coworker is from. These are simple measures that you can take to be cross-cultural. It's a small step in the right direction. Love can be shown in a host of ways. I think part of the problem is we think we got to do these grand things. We think we got to have a block party and invite the entire uh, neighborhood to our yard. I'm not saying that. I'm saying start small. Say hello to your, your mailman. Say hello to your garbage man. Say hello, say hello to your yard man. The people that we tend to or that the world tells us that are beneath us, why don't we try bestowing dignity upon them by speaking to them and showing them that they are our equal? That's how it works in God's economy. Those are small steps towards being hospitable to the strangers. When we look around our country, we see that the ethnic demographic of our nation is changing. So God, God is saying to us, if you don't want to go out and show love to the strangers, I'll bring the strangers to your front doorsteps. I'll make them knock on your door. Minorities, according to the United States Census Bureau, which are one-third of the population, are expected to become majority by 2042, constituting 54% of our nation by 2050. And by 2023, minorities will comprise more than half of all children. We've got a lot of opportunities to show hospitality to people who are different than us. We ought to continue to pray for and support foreign missions. We ought not let our guard down with the opportunities we have. And listen, as I shared with the group earlier, as I shared with the Sunday school class earlier this morning, this is completely nonpartisan. This is completely off political. I'm not here to comment one word on immigration policy. But what I am saying is if people find their way across our borders, why not preach the gospel to them? So that if they have to go back, maybe God might send a revival back to their country. Why don't we start there? Why don't we set down our swords of anger? Why don't we set down the hostility that Caesar is inciting in our hearts and start praying? Lord, if this is the case, what do I do in the meantime until Caesar figure out, figures out what needs to be done? In the meantime, I can pray for the people who are coming across that don't know Jesus. And I can witness to them. And I can love them. And I can pray that they might come to know the Lord so that if and when they go back, their village, their city, their town might come to know Jesus as well. And who knows, the Lord might cause a, a, a revival like that, a, a, like that of the Samaritan village. I'm just saying, perhaps if we set down that idol and look more to what the Lord Jesus Christ might be calling us to do through missions in his sovereign hand, we might see something amazing happen south of the border. When we're talking about doing cross-cultural ministry, we've got to educate ourselves on the core concerns of different people. Now, this room is predominantly white, Anglo, Protestant. I don't know the uh, socioeconomic demographic. I don't know the educational demographic. But I know, broadly speaking, some things that are true for the Reformed and Presbyterian denomination. So if I hazard a guess, I think I might be within that uh, 
a plus or minus two category, if you will. But what I am saying to you this morning is that our different backgrounds come with a different set of core concerns. When you think about reaching minority men and women, think about Amendment 4 that was passed. That impacts minority men and women greatly. It impacts my community. Where I am now, it impacts my community back home. Why? Because minority men and women are disproportionately incarcerated compared to the rest of the population. That has an impact on human flourishing. So we might want to start thinking about how these different things impact people. We might, might want to start thinking about the different concerns that people have about whether or not they can survive and thrive. And the church may want to come up with creative answers. You may want to think about the, it not only impacts minorities, but poor whites and Latinos. You might want to start thinking about what does it mean for a single mother to survive? You might want to start thinking about what does it mean for a single father to survive? You might want to start thinking more about the concerns of the child who grew up in a context where all of his or her heroes might have been people who broke the law. But the best picture of success they have are those criminals. Our core concerns are different. You might want to start thinking about what does a woman go through on her job when she is as qualified or competent to do the job as her male counterparts, yet there's a glass ceiling over her head. I'm not saying that you'll have all the answers to change the institutional, um, uh, the institutional injustices, but you might want to start thinking about how to apply the word of God to the trouble that that woman is facing. Rather than responding with classic political talking points when a minority comes and talks to you about the injustice or the racism that they may still be facing, you might not want to reduce it to just, oh, that's just liberal talk or that's just maybe the media trying to make you think that something is happening that's not really real. I witness this too often. I witness it personally in my own life. I witness it just recently within this month. And I'm a master's educated maybe overeducated in some ways, minister of the gospel of a notable denomination, a respected one, but that still sometimes is not enough for people. So you may want to think about the core concerns of people who fit my profile. You may want to think about how do we apply the balm of hope to folks who are not a part of the dominant culture, that don't enjoy the privileges or the luxuries of cultural isolation. These are all things that I have to think about as a minister of a cross-cultural church. I have to think about the African-American woman who's voted resident, a uh, chief resident, yet she's still dealing with insubordination and racism. I have to remind her that you are enough in God's eyes. I have to remind her that on a regular basis. And I have to confront the white brother from the dominant culture who's just responding to her with Fox talking points saying, oh, you think maybe that, that, that might just be in your imagination? You see, when we start talking about cross-cultural ministry, it comes at a cost. And you have to be ready to accept people who have different core concerns than you and me. That's all a part of it. We've, as I come to a close here, we've got to start becoming more culturally intelligent. As I've told you, the stats of our country is changing. And I want to read to you a couple of statements from Bob Burns, who authored uh, Resiliency and Ministry who did conducted a study of some uh, Protestant and Reformed pastors 
over a several year period. And these are some of the things that came from that study. The implications for the Church of the United States Census Bureau report are profound. This information underscores the importance of pastors pastors developing cultural intelligence for long-term ministry viability. Ministers, we've got to become more culturally competent. The cultural challenges experienced by Pastor Summit participants further emphasize the significance of this topic. One participant said, my whole DNA, my whole ministry DNA is white middle class. And there's a train coming down the track that shows this will no longer be the dominant culture. Cultural intelligence can be defined as the ability to understand, acknowledge, and appreciate current contextual forces as well as the cultural background of oneself and others. Got to understand yourself and you got to understand others. It involves an awareness of regional, ethnic, and generational differences and the implications of these differences on one's worldview. Two aspects of cultural intelligence stand out clearly from our summit research. Cultural, culture can be defined, can be geographical, generational, and socioeconomic as well as ethnic. This is illustrated well by one summit pastor whose church has a growing Christian school as well as a youth ministry that interacts with inner city children, creating a unique cultural tension. He says, we have families with children in a Christian school who do not want to be in a youth group with inner city children. Beloved, this is us. This Protestant, Reform, and Presbyterian. There's a creeping elitism in that. The parents don't realize that they have created a social, a social cultural grouping that freezes their kids from being able to integrate with others. So every phase of their life would be only in their context. This pastor, finished quote, knows that few issues are more sensitive and parenting decisions that may place children at perceived risk. However, because of his sensitivity to cultural dynamics, he also understands his responsibility to help these parents grapple with their creeping elitism. By addressing this issue, he is working on both conflict resolution and on training parents and children and how to function in a multicultural environment. Beloved, that may be a picture of what's in your heart. That may be a picture of your actions. But let me say to you this morning that the same God who's saving the nations is the same God that saved you. And when you look to this Jesus afresh, when you look to the finished work of this Jesus on your behalf, and you look to what this Jesus' mission was, may it encourage you to grow. May it encourage you to lay down your idols. May it encourage you to repent where necessary. And may it cause you to repent in action by reaching out in a cross-cultural context to the glory of God. We don't do it to earn his salvation. We do it because we've already experienced his salvation. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy toward us. We thank you, O God, that you reached across the proverbial aisles to save sinners like us. And may we, with that grace in mind, may we, with that love in mind, reach out to our neighbors. Holy Spirit, seal this word to our hearts that we might serve you with joyful obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.